0: Welcome to In the Open with Luke and Joe. I'm your host, Luke Shantz. And here's my co-host, Joe Seppi. And a big welcome to our guest, IBM fellow, John Cohn. Before we get to our show, don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you for joining us for another installment of In the Open with Luke and Joe. Today, I am pleased to bring you a conversation with the creative and technical powerhouse, John Cohn. We're going to be talking about the role of play and prototyping in John's work. To explore this theme, we will be digging in to the Verimin project. Veramin is an open source browser-based video instrument. It uses computer vision to track movement and converts those data points into music. But before we welcome our guest, John, let's say hello to our co-host, Joe Seppi.
1: Hey, Luke. How's it
0: going? I am doing well, Joe. Happy to be back on another episode of In the Open with you. Yes, always a pleasure.
1: I know we're both in Connecticut, but this weather is crazy. It was like spring was emerging, 70-degree weather, and then April Fool's, we got snow, and I've got snow today, too. It's 28 degrees. It's crazy, but that's the weather. That's how it goes.
0: It is, I, and I feel like Connecticut is like a microclimate because you've got this elevation, and it's close to the coast. I think you're 30 minutes away, and I didn't see any snow, so it's, yeah... I, I think we need to check in on some weather API, like microclimate weather API here.
1: Yeah, we should do that. Do some comparisons here, just the, the, the distance.
0: Without further ado, though, let's bring in our guest, John Cohn. Hey, John.
1: What?
2: Hey, what you guys talking about snow? I'm in northern Vermont. So I'm looking <laughs> at a ton of snow. Yesterday, my wife and I were hiking just near the house in, in, in waist-deep snow. But wow. down where I am, in the, it's just pretty, pretty dusty.
1: Yeah, you're way up there near Burlington, right? Yeah. Cool. I, I lived in Bennington for a little while. I love I love Vermont. Oh my gosh.
2: Yeah. Yeah, but I've lived everywhere. I've been all around. It's oh, great. Yeah. I love it up here. It is like a maker's paradise. So.
1: Yeah, it seems like it, right? It's a real kind of creative Yeah. you know hub, whatever you'd want to call it. Uh, One of everything. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. That's really
0: cool. So, before we get into the Veremon project, John, maybe you could give a little bit of a self-introduction to our listeners who might not be familiar with your work or where you're coming from. Oh my gosh.
2: Well, it all started 62 (laughs) years ago on a snowy day in New York City. And now I'm here. Let's see. I grew up to the extent that I grew up in Houston, Texas, uh, in the middle of the space race of 1960s. I wanted to be an astronaut. Wow. And I came to realize I wasn't good enough looking to be an astronaut. So <laughs> um, actually, my mom just found this article, this little piece of paper that I wrote that said I wanted to go to MIT and I wanted to be an engineer. And I did both of those. So wow. uh, that was a while ago. Yeah. Went to MIT because it was as far from Houston as I could get. I like Houston. Don't, I don't want to sell it short. But no, Houston's Houston, great. Houston, yeah. Houston in the summertime might be a little tough. Yeah. But came up here, I went to MIT and have really never escaped the orbit. I started, I'm like a huge, um, let's see, is that backwards? I can never Like no, say, Yeah, this is, I helped form VOMIT, Vermont's own MIT club. <laughs> and uh, I went there as an electrical engineer, took my junior year, went to Austria because I thought I wanted to be a historian because hmm. uh, I heard it was a good future in it. And I uh, decided, hell no, I'm going to be an engineer, came back and Joined IBM. I, you know, I used to hitchhike up here. I had a friend from Texas, and uh, I live in uh, beautiful Jonesville, Vermont, population 600, in a, a slightly haunted schoolhouse with my beautiful IBM issued wife. And I just started <laughs> my 40th year at this place, which wow. is crazy. But it's been uh, that's a pretty simple view. Three beautiful kids. My middle son, Sam, passed away several years ago, which I have to get out there soon because it kind of is a part of who I am. Have had a really good career, life. Enjoy working with people about just geeking out on science.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Lots of stuff there. I'm curious, Did you? when did you think about IBM? And sorry, I know we're all IBMers, so I don't want to spend too much time on this. But coming up in the space time, the space time in our country, well, was there any, I, I know IBM was really involved in that, but were you later on that got involved with IBM? I'm
2: just curious. When I answered your question, Joe, I think about IBM every waking second, of course. <laughs> of course. And <laughs> IBM is so big that it actually works space-time. But you mean space-time, what was really something about it? Because I, I said I wanted to be an astronaut, like every kid that I knew. Male or female, the several of the astronauts' kids went to our school and and I don't there was a horrible fire in Apollo 8 and Chaffee's went to our school. And I knew the Grissoms. and it was it was like it, what was fascinating about it is that everybody was into science and every, everyone wanted to be a scientist, and it certainly influenced the way that my brother and I came out. That's nice uh, yeah, so it definitely. And I kind of think that the power of, of something like that to to galvanize everybody's energy is you know something we need to find. Maybe climate is it. Yeah, yeah. But to have everybody on board and thinking about the same thing, you've seen it with the. Am I allowed to say COVID? Are we all? Yeah. yeah. But it, it has been really fascinating from a technology standpoint. However, that's been a major. Okay, we're all going over here, and I think that's been really interesting. So I'm a big yeah. believer in the power of collective enthrallment.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating. I, I I feel fortunate. My next door neighbor won the Nobel Prize for virology most recently, and he and his wife are both uh, research virologists. We talk to them all the time, especially with the pandemic, and it's been really fascinating to have those conversations with research virologists. It's really. Fascinating.
2: Wow, you're the closest I'll ever get to a Nobel Prize.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. It was yeah. shocking. When it was announced, I was like, wait, that's Charlie, my neighbor. That's 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 amazing. That's fantastic. So, yeah, we made him a, a
2: cake. It was nice. A Nobel cake? That's yep. great. <laughs> cool. I should also say that the main thing is that I'm a nerd. Like, this is <laughs> the, if I really had to define myself, I would say I am a very proud and dedicated nerd. And I hope that, I don't know who's out there right now, but I hope that. You've got nerds and
0: their dads yeah. out there. That's a great place to parlay into one of the themes that we are going to talk about today, which is the significance of play and, and how that ties into prototyping. And I think it one of the things I think we're trying to really get to in this show is trying to, yes, there's business problems to solve. Yes, there's technical challenges that that happen that we have to deal with. But I think a lot of the best stuff and a lot of what motivates us as engineers and technologists and scientists is this just passion and love for the technology and learning and playing. So I, I know that maybe set us up for that and let us know your methodology there and then how like a project like Veriman comes out of that.
2: Okay. Yeah, and that's something that's that's a long and hard one lesson. I've always been nerdy and always been working with my hands and I recognize that that's what you know, doing stuff projects in my um, I, I had my parents treated us with benign neglect and didn't care what we did in the in the garage. So we had all sorts of crazy stuff going on there, my brother and I. As a matter of fact, when they moved up to Boston, I had to go down and dismantle our lab, and I found almost World War III worth of chemicals in there, and that was interesting. <laughs> but I found that when I went to MIT particularly, but also everywhere else I've been in, in IBM in particular, that the people who always come into it with that passion, that how I'm going to learn most people in our fields, electrical engineering, I'm much more of an electrical engineer than I am a computer person, but came to it tinkering. And somewhere I started to realize that even myself, and then I noticed in coworkers that you just make less time for it because just stuff comes in. All the things that you got to do and you get promoted and trying to make a living and trying to create a family and, blah, and if you're not careful, you start to lose it. And what happened when for me with play, it started to come back into focus really when I started having kids because... Like most neurotic Jewish academics, I suck at sports. Am I allowed to say suck? Sure. Am I allowed to say sports? I'm allowed to say whatever. The guy who's going to go throw a football around. That's the oblong one, right? Yeah. Uh, I wasn't going to be that that guy. But when you go outside in the backyard and blow stuff up, it was a really nice bonding moment with kids. And I found that the more science kind of stuff, the stuff that I enjoyed that I did with them, the more they got into it. And then I got dragged into their schools and then the neighboring schools. And pretty soon, I think at last count, I've been in uh, in front of about 60,000 kids. Uh, and especially the weirder I look, the better off that actually works. <laughs> but I mentioned, mentioned about our son's passing. I have three beautiful boys. Max is the oldest who works at Meow Wolf. Do you know about Meow Wolf? no look up meow oh it's this amazing it started in santa fe i digress but it it started in santa fe but he is an amazing maker he has a five thousand watt cutting laser he writes code he welds he 3d prints but this is an indoor uh kind of experience park started in santa fe they just opened in las vegas and they're opening in boulder soon so anyway he does that our youngest son Gabe is a, a biochemist. That's why your, your Nobel Prize story, he's a third-year <laughs> yeah. third year PhD student in cancer biology. Cool. And our middle son, Sam, as I mentioned, passed away in an accident when he was 14 on vacation in Florida, which was, uh, how long you got us? That was yeah. a tough thing. Surprisingly, though, I found that playing was what brought me back. To this world. And I found specifically making stuff was therapeutic, but making stuff with other people, especially kids was just like, Hey, that feels good. And it felt right. And I started making things with people. And I kind of reflected on this actually what kind of gelled the thought that I was doing it, but I didn't really stop and say, you know, that's really my message until Our youngest one, Gabe, asked me to give a talk. I was the honors keynote at their graduation, at the high school graduation, which was kind of, we were in a town of 600 people, near a town of 4,000 people, and everybody knows everyone, and I was all nervous about giving this talk, because if you suck in that size town. But I ended up coming up with the idea that what would I tell myself if I could go back in time to when I was, say, 17 or 18? And it was really that I wish I had, uh, well, that I would want to reinforce or that not to work so hard and to play more. And that message, I found that to be such a powerful thing, even for work. What we do at IBM is you know, we, we've got technology. We're trying to understand it. The only way to understand stuff is to try it and take that playful attitude. You don't always know something's going to work. You don't always use You don't always use something for its intended purpose. You sometimes have to break things. You often have to fail. And all of those things just playful. Can I make something cool? And as I found through my career, moving towards the Veromain question, is that the more cool stuff you make, the easier it is, first of all, I don't like talking about things that I don't know how to do. You're always in this, like in my new job in AI, I'm not an expert yet. I'm trying to learn my way, and that's how I ended up with the Veriment. And I found that doing experiments like that not only helps you grow your own skills, but it's a great icebreaker. It's great because you can collaborate with people outside of your organization. You can continue to collaborate with students. Even in a client situation, when meetings go horribly wrong, bringing out some gadget that you made that uses you know the technology you're doing, it's incredibly, it's an icebreaker, and it, you, it's a, a source of collaboration. What happened with the Veriman is a perfect example. I was moving from, I was a uh, chief Science of, scientist of the Munich IoT Center, which was a super fun job. But it meant getting on an airplane every other week to go to Munich from Jonesville, Vermont, because they, they keep saying they're going to build a tunnel and they just never finished it. But, uh, the, the, so I was tr- learning more about AI. When I got to the MIT IBM lab where I work, which is such a super amazing place, we should talk about that. I was thinking, I don't know much about AI, so I better start playing around with it and learning. And I... Build Tesla coils. Do you know what those are? Mm-hmm. They're menacing devices that send out <laughs> big meter-long sparks. And I had this idea that I wanted to use AI to control a Tesla coil. So I crap. I put together something using. So I was learning TensorFlow. I'm a PyTorch person now, but TensorFlow. And on top of it, there was a trained model called PoseNet, which is a motion capture thing. They had some great people who put TensorFlow out and it did a really great job of having a bunch of like little demos, little open source demos. And there was a PoseNet thing using TensorJS so that the model actually it's, runs native in your in a phone or something. So I started hacking on that and pieced something together with Node-RED. Do you know about Node-RED? Of course. We should talk about Node-RED. I'm the, one of the grand great uncles of Node-RED. I'll tell you about <laughs> But basically crafted something crufty together that use PoseNet. A kind of a hacked example, used MQTT and turned into somewhat beautiful music. Then I was lucky enough to meet uh, somebody in one of the IBM out- developer outreach groups, Bob Barbosa. You ever run across him? Yeah,
1: yeah, Bob Oh, right? God,
2: what an amazing guy. He's just yep. great, solid front-end, back-end, and a good designer. Mm-hmm. And so he helped me take my really crafty, multi-three-piece kind of thing and actually make it into something kind of pretty elegant. So we did that, and I'll tell you, I did it just for fun. Did it just as a learning exercise. But I've had so much fun with that thing. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was at NeurIPS, which is the, like the main—it's the biggest AI conference in the world. Okay. And I walked into a room. I hope I'm not offending anybody by saying this, but there were a bunch of demos, some from my, our companies, quite a, most from not from our company, and what, well, frankly, pretty boring, except for one robot thing that tried to force food into your mouth. That was cool. But most of them were boring. And I sat down next to a friend of mine, another IBM person, and I said, oh, let me show you what I'm working on. I flipped open my laptop, brought up the Veriment version 0. 0. 0.0.01 or something like that. was playing around with it. We'll show you that. And all of a sudden we had a crowd. And I was like, this is good. And, and since then I've used that thing to, again, to, just to interface it. I We were talking before the show, I use it to interface to physical devices. So it runs my Tesla coil. I, you know, it, it, it's a MIDI controller, but I've now just recently with a, another student just over the hill, worked out a way of, of creating it as a, a general purpose MQTT interface. So I'm now running a big robot with it and a 30 foot keyboard. What else have I interfaced it to? Anyway, long answer, but because it's fun.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's really cool. There's so much there
2: to, uh, to dig into. Is there a way we can show that thing? Yes. Yeah, that people. I just realized I'm talking about it and maybe people ooh there's Luke.
0: Here is I
2: that am. Live? Oh wait, are you? you look frozen?
0: Uh oh. Let me uh, refresh it here. I got a lot going on.
1: Yeah,
2: let me I'm gonna
1: fire up mine too. Maybe we can fire up it. yours. Yep.
0: This is a lesson of you should always make a video backup.
2: I have my MIDI Oh, keyboard. I have that. I have that. Oh, did you actually hook it into a MIDI keyboard? Uh, I did,
1: but I don't know. I haven't gotten that it, part it, it
2: yet. Okay, it takes a little bit of... Uh, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll or actually, or can I share a screen? Yeah, you can share a screen. But you won't be able to hear me. Is that correct? Is
1: Maybe Joe, not. I could, why don't I share my Joe, screen? Yeah, yeah, Joe, share your screen. Okay. Share, share your screen. Let's do this. Uh, share screen. That one's fine. We'll probably get into the weird, yep, that thing. Yeah,
2: Yeah. Yeah, as I said, somewhat beautiful music. (laughs) <laughs> and if you actually pull uh, pull down the uh, couple things, first of all, pull down the, yeah, there, you'll see more functions than should ever be there. But you can control on PoseNet some of the matching accuracy, et cetera. But you can also uh, turn on several other things. You can turn on how modal it is, like whether it's in a minor key or and right now, actually, one thing I'm working on right now is my wife is, I should say, my, my wife worked at IBM for a while. Her late father-in-law worked there. And between us, we have 84 years of IBM. So she's sort of a techno, neat, nerd yoga teacher. And do you know what a harmonium is? These kind of things that you meditate to. So I'm trying to build a chanting device that uses Veramon. But so it's got some tonal things. You can set the the, the tone, you can set the, the vertical height fraction if you want discrete notes, duh, duh, or you want it more continuous. You can also turn, uh, if you have a MIDI controller hooked into your computer, by the way, so far we runs on iOS, Android, Windows, and iOS reasonably reliably. But it, it can output MIDI, and as I just mentioned, it'll also work with an MQTT broker and will follow your where your nose is and your eyes are, where your shoulders are. You can get all your whole body, but you can like get like a, a an idea of where your wrists are. So I have a robot that's arm. It's, it's in pieces right now, but you go like this. It follows your gaze, so it walks around with you and adjusts to the, the distance that you are, and you can wave your arms around and... It's totally insane, actually.
1: That's really cool. That sounds yeah. amazing.
0: That is so interesting. Two two thoughts I wanted to mention. I, I love that you uh, have a Tesla coil that, that controls this. And I'm a huge Nikola Tesla fan. I used to oh, go ahead.
2: I have seven Tesla coils. <laughs> what <laughs>
0: As soon as the pandemic's over, Joe and I are taking a oh, road yeah. trip up to, to see your Tesla coils. But I'm a huge fan of Tesla. I worked on this opera about Tesla before. So we went down this whole rabbit hole of, of research. And apparently now people know what this is. Maybe you've seen it at a Maker fair, but... Back in the day, apparently he would just turn this thing on in a room full of people and really terrify them. And his attitude was like, "What? This is cool. You should just be. You should like this." And he really scared people with it. The other thing I was going to mention, this so interesting that you have theremin and now you're adapting it, working with your wife. I remember a story that Theremin himself, his wife was a dancer, and he made a stage size therapy He basically turned a whole stage into a theremin so that she could dance and have the, the performance be both musical and, and dance.
2: Who's uh really famous is his consort. Uh, I don't know what's the appropriate word for. Yeah. But Clara Rockmore, you should check her out. So she was like, and she actually, she died in the nineties. Actually he died in the nineties too. They, but she was a viol- violist, which is wait, which is bigger violin or viola. Viola is where you sit with it. Almost a cello. No, No, it's a joke. It's no, They're the same size, just violinist's heads are bigger. No, but she was a violist, and she actually developed a muscle tremor. And so she performed... You should go check us out. Like, she's got this crazy Rachmaninoff and Sansong things playing. And uh, here's another theremin. He was in the United States at the time, and he had RCA make 100,000 of these theremins because he was pretty sure it was going to replace the piano, which he totally got wrong. But... (laughs) In the, right before the second world war, he moved back to Russia and in 1995, right before he died, he got, I may have actually gotten it after he died, but he got an award for, for working on the, the bugs that were in the U.S. Embassy. I thought was kind of interesting.
0: Oh, very interesting. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: He was kind of cool. Yeah. But I, I've seen some of that dance stuff. Do, do you know Todd McIver at MIT? No. Uh, he's the father of guitar Hero. But oh. he's done some amazing full stage kind of interactive sound sets. I do a lot of interactive art is my kind of go to outside of work. Wow. <laughs> yeah. But but I think the idea of, of nonsense, apply, real technology applied to nonsense is very effective.
0: Yeah, that's a
2: great concept. I
0: love that. And it's like you said, you may be doing this thing because it's fun or it's nonsense, but you don't know what's actually going to come from it. It's In that sense, it's very much like science or like pure research. You don't have an outcome necessarily. You need to discover and then...
2: Yeah, and you need exactly, you need to be open to the fact that you might be on the wrong place. Now, it's been very interesting, especially what, one of the things that I found that things like the Vera are very useful for is getting people to lean in. To AI, I just have been on. Uh, the governor of Vermont asked of me and a couple a group of other people to on a, a task force for the for AI, and we started the year before COVID and just finishing up. And one of the things I realized is that there's a lot of misunderstanding and fear and non nuanced conversations going on. So one of the things I'm trying to do is we're working on the, Vermont's kind of a brave little state and it's small enough that you can get stuff done. We're trying to get more AI. Well, actually start by getting more computer science into the schools, starting at middle school, and then having some stuff about AI where you can get people interested in it and can understand what it can do, what it can't do, what it shouldn't do. And actually a way of starting the conversation with something fun. I'm working with right now, just a parallel thing. Are you familiar with the programming? Uh, language Scratch that Ms. Oh. Resnick and I. Made. Oh, yeah. So, the good folks at Scratch have created a really nice extension program. And I'm working with a glow in the dark, brilliant woman, 13 year old woman named Isha, who lives in New Jersey. That is uh, where they have a plugins construct and they've started to build little AI componentry, including PostNet, the thing that we just showed. And the uh, Long, complicated story, but the vermin influenced some of that, which was fun. But I'm working with this woman, Isha, on, you know, creating a little curriculum around make your own AI in, in something like Scratch, which is purely a play just for fun kind of thing. And I just think it's such a great thing. And it like I say, it, it, it gets your own skills going, but it also gets conversations going. And it, and my sort of world domination kind of thing is, I think if you can get kids Uh, interested and not just and thoughtful things like ethics and stuff like that you can get them talking it's a great vector to get the rest of society their parents and then you know so that's my plan for mind control (laughs) start with the kids yeah no i think kids actually are very interested and they're just Kids these, kids these days, uh, you know, because of open source, when you go into an average high school, you're going to find a group. Of, I'm very involved in first robotics. You know what that is? Yeah. So I'm the state sort of first robotics, first tech challenge champion. Uh, champion sounds like I did something good. No, I'm, the, I'm the angelist, right? And you, any high school you go into, even in the most remote parts of our, our great little remote rural state, you'll find kids because of the open source things and Arduino and Raspberry Pi that know that can actually hack together some simple AI. So it blows my mind. you know.
1: Yeah. It's really interesting. Kids are really absorbing all this stuff and they,
2: yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm not a big Java programmer. I thought that was what my grandpa used or something. And, but I had a high school junior in south burlington vermont teach me how to use android studio to do these robot stuff i learned so much from that guy you know how to use the debugger online and stuff like that so i think you sometimes go in one of these kind of technical humility that you go in going i know everything i'm going to tell them about this stuff and you really learn even these students can teach you stuff yeah uh, sure. yeah and i don't mean that just metaphorically like they're smarter than you
0: are. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about a career in technology is that it you're never done it, it is this constant uh, learning process and like you said even if you happen to be a, a subject domain expert in in you know one area there's going to be so many things that you don't know about and while that can be daunting it's also really positive because it means it's always a good time to get involved an and if you like put some effort in a short period of time like you can get up to speed it's a process right?
2: Yeah and it's it's such an interesting thing I was meditating on that a little bit, too, is that you got to, that goes back to what I just said about maybe technical humility, is that if you, I've now on my fourth or fifth career at, at IBM, or as a grown-up to the extent that I am, and I, you have to, when you go into one of those new areas, so I, I was, for the first, for the first 30 years, I, I'm a chip guy. So, I work on the software used to design chips and really know that field. Just after I have a strict policy of every 30 years, you do something different. <laughs> but then, since then, I, I was in a corporate strategy and then helped start the IoT of the Internet of Things brand and IBM. And then now I'm doing this AI stuff. And each time you go in knowing that you don't know it. And it's, again, playful. you got to be playful because you can't really fake it till you make it. That's not fair to yourself or to anyone else, especially as you get more senior. I'm fairly senior in IBM. And people expect, because they have a title, they expect you to know everything about it. And it, you have to go in there and explain that you're learning too. And I think that's good messaging. That's good uh, modeling for young career people because the, the scariest thing in the world is when I meet somebody who thinks they know everything. <laughs> I, I know what I don't know, I, I hope, but that, so this has been really a fun exercise trying to retool Prytorch, for example. Yeah.
1: I, it's good to be humble and open to these sorts of things. And I found that too, when I started at IBM and I was doing more like advocacy and evangelism work and like talking about things, like it was scary. And one of the, one of the things I needed to learn was like, it's okay to not know everything and to be open to that. And you have a hard question. I don't know the answer. I'm going to go try to find it out and then I'll get back to you. And I think that's a, you know, a good way to approach things. Then you learn and and you can share that learning and, and yeah.
2: And I think open, has just made that so much easier. The the fact that you can go and find stuff on the outside. And one thing, I don't know how much we're supposed to pitch IBM here, but thing that I love about it is you can find every kind of person from Nobel prize winning physicist to economists, to ethnomusicologists, we even had a corporate comedian, but you can find it, <laughs> it's the question of, and, you know, making sure that you can uh, locate those folks. Yeah. And, um, yeah. But I just think that the world is so much better connected now. I, I grew up in it. My, my first love was, I was a telephone hobbyist.
1: Oh, that
2: the way? yes. Uh, that's a story. So are,
1: sure what does that mean? Is that, are we talking about Erlang, right? Was that the telephone stuff or Luke? No, well, about, I think talking he's talking about, about
0: phone uh, um, freaking. The, the phone yeah, freaking. I phone yeah, freak. gonna, yeah.
2: Yeah. Okay. And I got caught when I was, is this an okay, is this an okay thread? We can edit it. I think so. I was thinking about how, how I learned that. I went down to the Rice University Library, and the good people at Bell System had published all of their in band signaling. And we, me and my two friends, would just go through this stuff. And that's how, and, and then there was, I remember it was a big innovation because so there's a 300 baud telephone modem call in that we would change gears with. and Followed up a hacker magazine back then. That all happened when I was a minor. So I was told when I became a real grown up that would disappear. And when I was just right before I was going to graduate from MIT, literally three weeks before I was going to graduate, I got hauled into the campus police by and there was an FBI person there. And there was an incident which I had nothing to do with. I really didn't. I, I, I only found out about what happened uh, afterwards, but they had my expunged record had somehow been respunged. And, and there was a lot of circumstantial evidence. It was one of the people, the, the the guy's girlfriend had the same last name as mine, which is in my culture, like Smith. But they thought they caught me. And I was like, well, I, but anyway, but, uh, but where was I going? Oh, I was going because in the, the day we had to go like to the library and get those there's paper things that they're called books and, and yeah. do it. Now you can just throw stuff out on the interwebs and find people who know people. And I think it's just such, it's so fascinating how easy it is to, to, to get things started now. I love yeah. it. So true.
0: Yeah, it really is. And I, I hear what you're saying. Even if, even if you know about say one microcontroller platform and you try to dive into another, there is this, this learning curve and read the manual there's no shortcutting the shortcut right like it's actually you're saying the information's there you just got to grab it i i went crazy around my house this uh past winter with all of these temperature and humidity sensors so i have all of these little guys and i put them on all of these like esp boards yeah oh yeah Yeah, uh, or 8266 and then look this is the data i collected i've got this is all the temperatures in different places in my house and now i'm at the stage where it's like oh i want to analyze this i'm going to build these dashboards could i could i get some kind of ai custom thermostat we'll see but this is what i've been playing with and it's if you're not
2: comfortable move three inches to the left is that
1: well well luke is redoing his house i have a lot of meetings with luke and so sometimes he's like in a bundled up blanket and (laughs) so like
2: real data there I, I was thinking about a that that crowdsourcing of information and in when I was a, when I was a little boy I, I it was shortly after Sam passed I was in Shanghai and I saw this was two thousand seven and I saw the the sign wall size building size TV screens at the time and so I bought some of now you see this stuff everywhere but at the time. I bought a bunch of this stuff, this is more recent generation, but I couldn't find, there was no documentation, but the documentation that was there obviously it was in Chinese, but it was poorly documented and, and it was all for video. This was for, for wall size video. And so I bought a couple of meters of it to make a hat, of course. And I sort of just got on a oscilloscope and tried to reverse engineer what was coming out of the controller because I had a little bespoke controller. And it was early and that was pretty early in the times of things like Make Magazine and stuff. And I put, some, I found a, a kid I didn't meet until a decade later that could help me figure out how the fades work. But now th- This is, again, this is more recent generation stuff. But I was so amazed that we had actually, we had exchanged all this information. We had put out an open source. I was first on a basic stamp. Remember the basic stamp? And then we had redone it on PIC controllers, and then we eventually did it on Arduino. And I think some of our code actually ended up in some of the Adafruit stuff that I use now. Um, And it was just this kind of weird group of people coming together to decipher something. I built a thing for Burning Man. I, I go to a festival called Burning Man with a bunch of people, and I bought... 20 meters of this stuff for the two wheels. And this I remember being up there at three o'clock in the morning, you know, soldering at the top of something, trying to get something to work, which eventually worked, which was good. But I just love this kind of idea of collective, you know, right now in IBM research, we have this idea of communities of discovery, the whole idea that you don't necessarily have to have all the skills in your one little pod to be able to figure something out. You can put it out there and people can collaborate. And still compete in the open world, but still figure out ways of solving problems that are mu- of mutual interest. I just totally, that was unthinkable. And when I was a tadpole, tad one, maybe. Yeah.
0: Go ahead, Jeff.
1: <laughs> no, it's amazing stuff. I'm curious, like what's, what's going on for you right now what's coming up in the future? What are you excited about that's on the horizon?
2: I'm very interested in how you get the public more interested in AI. That's one thing. And just in science in general. I'm super fascinated. I was on a project related to COVID. I was uh, peripherally related to the group that just the health passports coming out in New York State. We were working on a, a tool. We developed a tool for doing uh, uh, contact tracing using Bluetooth, but Bluetooth was inaccurate because it goes through walls, for example, and it can be two meters off on a two-meter accuracy measurement. So we're using phones, just unaltered phones, to do ultrasonic confirmation. So you can remove uh, false positives. So I I really like this idea of code for good. And I've been getting more involved in something that IBM does called call for code. IBM is a sponsor of call for code. And I believe that you can turn on that switch in in anyone, but in a student that says she or he can use their technical chops to do some good in the world. I I think that's a lifelong, you know, lifelong enablement. If they can, if you can turn on that, I like doing that. I can do that and my skills can make a difference in the world. That's just a great magnifier. It's like a fantastic Ponzi scheme. You can So that is one thing I'm working on. And I'm also, as much as I love technology for purpose, I'm also, as I said before, a big believer in technology for no reason at all, because it's fun. <laughs> so right now I'm working on, do you know the band Fish? Yeah, uh, of course. They're Vermont buddies. And so Mike Gordon, the um, bass player's good friend, and in 2013, me and my friend Homer built him a 30-foot keyboard that was interactive so that people who attended the shows, and these words, uh, his band was in smaller venues than fish But it was an interactive thing that would allow people in the audience to play it. And it was completely beer-proof. So, there was <laughs> an, these, so now I'm re-rigging it to run off of Easter. Run on using a, a a tool called Max MSP. Do you know what that? or yeah. Ableton. Yeah. He wanted to make it simpler because he wants to have it as more of a toy, and so I'm re rigging it for his house so that it all runs on a Raspberry Pi four. So that's what I'm doing this afternoon. <laughs> My boss isn't listening, is <laughs> but, uh, but I'm I'm and actually interfacing it to the vermin, Of course. Cool. Just for fun, so you can sweep and have it go. But we're always into making, I think that the idea of spectacle, making science a a little bit bigger and a little bit more surprising than people expect is a really good way of getting people into it. I've been doing this for work with kids and work in schools for now three decades to the point where, you know, their kids are now being impacted by it, which I totally love. I love it when a kid comes up and says, I remember you came in and shocked the teacher or whatever. (laughs) But anyway, uh, uh, so I'm looking forward to doing more hands-on stuff. I think it's, I've, I've earned, I believe, the time to go putter. So that's what I'm doing more puttering for good. Yep,
1: and and for play.
2: Yeah, definitely for play.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's amazing. Yeah,
0: that's so interesting. What you were saying about the communities of discovery, and I just wanted to mention, I, I also am involved in the Call for Code, and we just did this podcast for Call for Code. It's all about getting started, and. One of the main themes of the podcast is exactly what you just said is, first of all, the the starting kits and like the prompts for Call for Code have expertise baked into them. But really, the, whether you win or not, the whole process that is outlined there is exactly like this community of discovery that you mentioned, where it's it's about getting engaged within that Slack channel, within your own community, finding subject matter experts, like one of the teams that won, I think last year or the year before, two years ago, Prometeo they didn't win the first year, and then they went and got with an actual wildfire fireman who is an expert in that space, and then having that subject matter expert on the team allowed them to revamp the idea and then end up winning. And I hear stories over and over like that. The more you actually, it's a little bit of risk, maybe opening up and saying, I don't know, or asking for help or, or talking to people. But the more you actually do that, I hear these amazing stories about how this fantastic stuff comes out of it.
2: Yeah, that sends me on two rifts, One, on the call for code thing, one of the things that I'm so excited about is actually a mechanical thing. So this past year, or well, past year and a half, I helped at MIT we built a supercomputer named Satori which is named after my dog who unfortunately passed away this year but it was number 4 green computer in uh, supercomputer in the world wow and the process of doing that yeah it's it's been pretty fun because it was in a kind of storyline it was built using power 9 processors which I worked on everything up through power 7 but they were still using the same design methodology so I actually had to learn how to use these <laughs> and I recognized one of the things about how do you make technology consumable, because just trying to get something in use at MIT is really interesting because there's so many, there's 23 different departments, physics, electrical engineering, humanities is one department. But we had so many different things coming at us, we had to make it as simple to use as possible. So we, we really do a lot of work with things like just simple Python stuff and Jupyter notebooks. And what I'm working on now with the people in global university programs is trying to get the all of IBM has some fascinating technology around climate. We have things like uh, weather company. We have pears, We have a lot of data science stuff. We have the Mayflower magic boat thing you know, research. But we have all of these components uh, and they all what we're trying to do is bring them into a single kind of a very consumable component based on OpenShift. So what we're doing is basically creating like a code-ready container that will you be able to come down and in ninety seconds be in Jupyter Lab, whether you're running on your laptop or you're running on a hosted supercomputer like a Satori. So I've been spending a lot of time trying to how, how do you, what's the easiest way to doc? How do you make something? It's intrinsically complex. It's rich and deep. How do you make that accessible and usable in a form that everyone can see? So I was spending a lot of time learning, coming backwards from an outsider's perspective to say, okay, here are the tool sets that I can assume that someone would know. How do I make some of our more complex? I don't know if you know about pairs, but it's this really cool spatial temporal database around the sort of community of discovery thing. How do you make that really consumable? So you don't have to go through a bunch of proprietary interfaces. So I'm learning a lot about that. But can I change, can I go back to another thread or do you want me Please. to stop and take a breath? No, no, go ahead. Uh, that, that what you said, Luke, a couple minutes ago about the uh, ability to ask for help, we were ripping on that before. One thing we hadn't talked about, which I am contractually incapable of not mentioning in every conversation, is that so I think you know this loop, but I was in a reality show a couple of years ago on Discovery and that was that was a pretty weird experience and it was a STEM, it was a stem it was discovery Channel's show called the colony totally stupid really <laughs> stupid premise but It had this ridiculous premise like that there was this global pandemic it was really weird because actually there there were 10 of us me and nine crazy people and we're still very close And we all had this kind of weird, early in the pandemic, though, we didn't think it was early. We got, we do a lot of sort of events and we all did a virtual event for a seventh grade class in Toronto about the pandemic. And I realized as we were all talking that we were all having this kind of post-traumatic reaction to the pandemic because that was what we were supposedly living. And even though no one lost touch with reality, but it, it felt very strange. But the whole thing, going back to what you said, Luke, is that it was the whole idea of, of inventing under constraint, but that we didn't have the internet that they knew of. That's another story, but they didn't, we didn't have the tools we needed, et cetera. And we all started by hoarding our projects, whatever it was like, I'm going to do this all right. And if I'm going to succeed, everybody's going to no, know it's mine and blah, blah, blah. And we all. I remember the moment that it, it it clicked for me. That was that asking for help was not a sign of weakness. It was a sign of intelligence. But I was <clears throat> trying to turn a car over so I could take out the alternator. <clears throat> we were making a generator that burnt wood. That's a long story. But, and I was going to try to turn this car over by myself. And one of my, we, I was hired to be the book smart guy and the, the street smart guy who was 6'4", my dear friend now you know, came over and said, professor, you beep. And, you know, he just called four of us and we just picked the car up and went, (laughs) it was like, it just was a really interesting thing. But the idea of asking for help is not a sign of weakness. And if you're an ability to give help and do it freely, that's really what's behind open source. It was just a really fundamentally cool, that was a cool event.
1: Yeah, that's interesting. I, I don't want to use the word like successful, but I think people who are able to, ask for help and recognize like these gaps that they may have to further whatever it is they're working on. That's how, again, I don't want to use the word success, but how you reach what your goal is. I think you redefine
2: success. If You define success as something that is a rarefied component that if you get some of mine, I have less, you do, you act in a wrong way. If you say, like you said, if the, the success is achieving the goal of whatever it takes, then my success is your success and that's a really that's fundamentally what open source is right yeah exactly yeah
0: i think a lot of our listeners might be familiar with the cloud side of that how that happened how we've gotten from having to build your own diy infrastructure as a service monitoring and all of this but this totally brought back memories when you mentioned basic stamp and pick chip I remember when I had gone back to school for new media stuff and to do a project that involved electronics, you needed this whole little team. It was like a big deal. And you'd make this like really janky prototype board. And everybody would just do that over and over and never really achieve like a level of excellence from the project. And then fast forward two or three years later, I'm using that was the wiring board. Then it was pre, like pre-Arduino, but the wiring board by myself, I, I was able to do this quite elaborate for the time I was using Maximus i I'm using the wiring board and I'm creating this interactive like museum exhibit. And it just, it goes to show for years and years, people were recreating the wheel over and over. But then as soon as it got into an open source place, you could just go right to creating that yeah, differentiation value. Level,
2: you raise the level of innovation. Exactly. And I think the maker movement, wait, Luke, was it you that, did you work at Third Ward?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I had a studio there and I taught classes there. I I was one of the first to teach the 3D printing in New York. I had one of the early Maker bots and stuff.
2: Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Because I think that's when it started to hit me that what was happening in the software world was actually able to happen in the physical world. Just a quick, I'm just remembering this, my oldest son, our oldest son who works at Meow Wolf used to live in a hundred and forty seven foot derelict ferry boat that was just outside Luke's window. Do you remember that story I was telling you about? Yeah.
0: I do. Uh, I do remember yeah. this boat too.
2: It's still there, the Shimanchi. Yeah if you go on if you go in Google Maps and look up where Third World was uh, where Third Ward was say that twice um, <laughs> on Morgan Ave the boat is still there. And it's hard to miss. You can go and you just go down and you can see it. You can even see the swimming pool and the roof where I always remember, because I would go down there when I was working in Armont and my wife and I, or if she was with me or I would, we would camp on the roof of the building because the 147 foot boat was a pirate hippie hangout and it, it was impossible to sleep. So I would sleep on the top and, and looking at third ward. And then at Five thirty, when the airplanes from JFK started taking out, I put on my sport jacket and drive to Armonk. It's great.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. How oh, cool. Armonk being that.
2: IBM headquarters.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I I used to live over in Westchester. And and then when I started working at at IBM just four years ago, I'm an infant in IBM terms. But you couldn't throw a stick without hitting an IBMer. And uh, at the local cafe, I met this couple and they're like 88 and 91. And the guy like retired from IBM and he worked there for 50 years. He created the computerized EKG machine. And uh, what's his name? Maybe even Ray. Gosh, I'm forgetting his last name. We'll connect later and and share that. But not Ralph Gomery, is it? No. Uh, I can't remember his last name now. It was mm-hmm. Ray something or other. I'll look it up maybe in a second. But just amazing. So many people
2: that were doing interesting things through the years there. And it's such an amazing family. In the diaspora, the people who are still in there, people who have retired, moved to other places. It is like the biggest family in the world. I, one of the things that was very interesting about this last year, until I started working at, at the MIT lab at the very end of 2018, but before that, I spent my entire adult life traveling all over the place and had so many friends in IBM. Uh, it was very interesting this year. I don't know if you both felt that. Is how much I miss the human contact, but also how much I now realize that we could travel a whole lot less. I'm glad I got to, but it was very interesting though. But what a what an incredible community of people. I know.
1: Ray Bonner, that's who it was. Oh, uh-huh.
2: I knew it, Yeah, you know Ray. No, I know who he is. No, he okay. was before my time. Believe it or not. Yeah, he's amazing. He and his wife are really sweet people. Yeah, yeah. I was actually born in West in Ardsley. Do you know where that is? Yeah. yeah that was, but, but then my parents moved to Houston because my dad was a sports promoter, which yeah. was very interesting. But we still found some. I don't know what we used to talk about, but <laughs> I like got two different planets. But yeah, right.
1: Well, I I thought about this early on, Houston and Burlington actually seem similar to me, like they're creative places that have,
2: am I crazy? I don't know. No, Uh, I would say that Burlington has not discovered Mexican food. I love Houston. Yeah. It's got a great art culture, actually. Yeah, I mean, I guess there's a very cool, there's a very cool kind of avant-garde art and music thing there that I was super into.
1: Yeah, that's what I'm thinking about too. I, I drove around the country for a while once and played a show there and it was this open warehouse and there were a bunch of punk kids and creative types running around and it just
2: seemed really rich. Yeah, my, my brother, uh, who is a world-famous surgeon inventor guy down there, had was part of a group called the Urban Animals. That they were, remember a street skating? like They, they had this whole punk rock, street skating inventing club thing and this was in the 70s and 80s i was like what was going on and let's just say that wasn't the texas of my youth but it was really it's a very cool place yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll i'll have to meditate on the you know burlington is the houston of the of northwestern vermont though so, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. Uh, well, it
1: must be the climate
2: is rocky erickson from houston
1: i don't know if you're familiar with rocky from no. the 13th, 13th floor elevators Oh my gosh, I love the 13 floor elevators, but yeah, no, I don't know. Yeah. He was the lead singer, guitar player, and they were in Texas, and that's a whole nother I, song.
2: I'm I'm kind of an Americana Towns Van Zandt. Yeah. I'm a lousy guitar player,
1: but I love Towns. Yeah, yeah. yeah. he
2: took a hit off my beer. <laughs> and Jerry Jeff Walker died. Did you hear that? Oh, yeah. I didn't hear that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm.
0: Oh. Yeah, I all- think we should continue this conversation on. Uh, oh, sorry. Uh, no, I meant these are actually topics that Joe and I are talking about. We should have another hobby podcast where we talk more about the arts and culture. And I think we're going to do that. Yeah.
2: I find that in any professional setting, like in this, is of course, professional setting, but when you start getting into people's individual passions, that is always a very interesting thread. And especially when you can mix them. That's the whole, yeah. taking back to the technical play, where I've met musicians and, and artists. that's yeah. That's been my whole thing is trying to enable... I'm not artistic or musical, but I love helping give somebody a technical boost who's got a vision, an artist or a musician.
1: Yeah. And, and it seems like, I think the three of us are good examples. Like, I'm finding at IBM that there's enough freedom to bring some of your creativity to
2: your work. Absolutely. And, and I... I hope it's okay to say this. People ask me like, how could you live in a big company like that? And I have found it to be the most amazing playground, even though most of my career I've been doing real, you know, hardcore delivery of real products and stuff like that, I think that just the range of passions that, that people bring to it. And I think the company has this, it gets trite, they call it a culture of wild ducks. Yeah. And, and I think on a day-to-day basis, you go, where is that culture? But honestly... The people I know who have been most successful there and lasted longest have have that culture, and I bet that's this. I bet, I bet that's true in other big companies. Where you have to develop a counter You need a culture, and then you can have a counterculture. That I think our countercultures are really where a lot of our spark comes to feed back into our culture.
1: Yeah, and I'm finding too, like the wild duck stuff is sometimes just under the surface, and you, there's something there, and then you're like, oh. Like I, I was sharing something with a friend, uh, a colleague and, and it was my music stuff. and he's like, "Oh, this reminds me of music back in Chicago not too long ago. I was like, I used to live in Chicago and a lot of these songs I wrote and it's like, oh wow, okay, you you've got a little wild duck underneath uh, the surface, too. It's interesting.
2: And what's interesting? can I are we out of time or can I riff on wild ducky? So one thing that was very interesting, this whole wild duck thing, it was it was one of our founders. It was DJ Watson senior. I think who talked about wild duck. It's a, it's a Danish child story about a, a duck that went the wrong way, blah, blah, blah. But we sometimes paint that as being somebody who looks crazy or acts crazy or says crazy stuff, but it's really something very different. And I, a couple of years ago, we had one of these value jams things that IBM puts everybody together and says, what do we collectively believe? And I could give us great points for really, really trying to do that. And there was, you know, the treasure your wild ducks was theme 47 or something. It was one of those things. And I got called to on a Friday to be in, in New York city on Tuesday because they were going to film something on wild ducks. And I'm uh, honestly, just because I got crazy hair, I, I just cut it. People say, Oh, you're a wild duck. And and it's really not that it's not that you look crazy or act crazy or say crazy stuff. It's really that idea of being persistent about a, an idea that isn't popular, just doing it because it's the right thing, even if it's not the right thing. And I kind of sat there as we were filming these short segments. And one after the other, my colleague got up and told some crazy story of something that, some thing where they had fixed the world. And I was like, I'm not going to do that. So when I had a turn to talk, I talked about actually it was a technician that I worked with, Doug Llewellyn back in the day in Burlington. And he, he was a quiet guy, still a quiet guy, and he had a crazy idea about how to do layout for these memory chips. And he just persisted, and persisted, and everyone, including myself, kept telling him he was wrong. And, and he got me to do a little code, and then, and my code is terrible. And somebody saw my code and they said, "Let me redo that for you." And anyway, in the end. His idea prevailed and it really made a big difference. And it wasn't because he was wild or flamboyantly crazy or real out there. It was because he had this crazy idea and he knew it was right. And I thought that was, so that's the story I told. And I just told it again. (laughs) Yeah. That's great. Wild. Here's to the wild ducks. Yeah, Exactly.
0: Yeah, I really, that resonates. And I that's been my experience as well. For work stuff, everybody I've ever reached out to has been nothing but gracious, especially with becoming a podcast guest and or other things that are more, like you're saying, deliverable based. People have been really gracious. But once you get to know folks and you scratch the surface a little bit, you find these really interesting, like maybe they're into crafting or maybe they're into some sort of really enthusiastic into some sort of sport, cycling. And it really is an amazing uh, ecosystem of folks. And what I've learned too over the past few years is how much it overlaps with that open source community we talked about. Pretty much throughout every significant open source community, you're going to find IBMers contributing and it's... And-
2: yeah, I think it's a technical generosity. You get that idea, so you pay it forward, but it comes back to you indirectly somehow, or even if it doesn't matter. But I think that's just, that's one of the most phenomenal inventions of the internet. Well, I, I think it really comes from that because i think it allowed people at any point to contribute at any level totally flattened that you didn't have to be part of a big organization or anything like that and i think that is a huge improvement in our humanity because i don't it's not just a technical thing but it's the ability to contribute on whatever level at whatever place on equal footing with big institutions small institutions i would love, i love that
0: yeah, I think contribute and
2: collaborate, work together too.
0: A- absolutely. And you're right, even outside of tech, I went to this, it was called Orbital Bootcamp and it was like a personal development thing. It was right before I got the job at IBM. And one of the things, for it was this guy, Gary Chow in New York, it was in the former Kickstarter headquarters. But one of the things they talk about there, and I think it really resonates with the open source software, but again, could be applicable to anything, is working in the open is amazing because you might think you know what you're looking for, But if you work in the open and people see that things are going to find you that you never would have even considered because you put it out there, whether it be as simple as blogging, just blog about what you're doing and opportunities that you never could have imagined are going to find you.
2: Uh, And I really, it's almost, yeah, sorry, go ahead.
0: No, I was going to say in the open,
2: you know, that's where we are. Yeah. And I think that it's weird because it's sort of almost metaphysical that you can manifest things and just put it out there then things show up. I'm finding this conversation a little bit like that as I'm trying to metamorphosize myself for my this new decade of my life and you know, trying to figure that out. Uh, I, I just think that it's pretty pretty amazing. Even in these really struggling these are tough times, but it give gives me this great sense of optimism and kind of expectation what's gonna show up in my my inbox. Yeah. You know, and just two days ago I had a reunion, just a chance reunion. I was an exchange student when I was a junior in college, and I hadn't seen some of these people in 41 years. And for some reason I had bought a car. This was in Austria, but the guy was actually had left a car in Houston. And I bought this 1971 Volkswagen van, Maggie from him sight unseen. And we were on this reunion and I, I whipped out this key. And he sent me this long letter about the history of that well, that car, which I hope is still driving around somewhere in California. <laughs> but I was just like, "Oh my god!" This was just like just a came out of the cosmos to just the perfect time to reconnect across four decades. Just loved it.
1: Yeah, yeah, cosmic collaboration.
2: Yeah.
0: So. I think we should wrap it for today, but John, I think sure. this has been a great conversation. And what we should do actually is let's check back in soon. Let's uh, let's have you back on uh, maybe in the summer after you've been working on a few things. Maybe we yeah. you could tell us tell us what you've been up to.
2: Yeah, I've, I've got a couple of projects that'll probably be. Uh, I'm working on a medical device right now. I think maybe I'd be able to talk about that a little bit. And yeah, th- I would love that. And I'll tune in. I, I'm really glad to to know you both, and and I'll, I'll tune in because I. Sounds like there's uh, a couple of friends have mentioned that they listen to it. So I'm going to start listening to it too. <laughs> That's
1: great. And next time, yeah. I was told that you blow things up. So
2: next time we got we to work that in too. Yeah. Do you have time for another story? Oh,
0: absolutely. So,
2: yeah. and this is a sad one. It's a very sad one. My really good friend, Scott, who's one of the guys who's helped me build four of my Tesla coils. He's just an amazing, better, yeah, quiet guy, but very just real technical, passionate guy, super, super smart. He's working his way through pancreatic cancer and just had a bunch of gear. And we have had not just high voltage as a common hobby, but chemistry and pyrotechnics in particular. And you'll notice I'm sitting on this side of the yoga space because that side of the yoga space is not safe to sit. But uh, Scott had a whole bunch of chemicals and he just was thinking about life and we had to try to get, he wanted me to find homes for them. So we we actually found that the university, I'm a professor at the University of Vermont as well. And that the, actually, let me just think about whether I should say all this. Yeah, I think this is okay, but we, so a lot of the chemistry gear that we had, which was a lot of it was pyrotechnic stuff that the department of chemistry took because they use it for doing that. Like our youngest son knows this guy who does all these chemistry demos. But I found that there were two chemicals in there which had it come to light, guys with hazmat suits would go over to my friend's house and I would. so this morning I had to go do one of these weird I had a appointment to meet with the with the hazardous waste folks and had to sign all those papers and get rid of this stuff and it didn't work particularly. One was one was toxic Mercury. Know, so, which luckily is going to get re- reused, and another happens to be it was something that we had ready access to, but is now, thanks to Breaking Bad, considered not good to have. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was really something. It was so sweet, but anyway. So yeah, we can talk about pyrotechnics. Yeah, uh, I
0: I love pyrotechnics. In, in, yeah, but uh,
2: safety third, as we say. <laughs>
0: Well, and once once we're safe to be visiting and traveling again, I feel like that would be ripe for yeah. making a, a YouTube video or of some sort oh, of uh, pyrotechnic go, demonstration. Go at, I,
2: there's a little bit. It, go look up innovation through play uh, a video making, that I did with Ogilvy. I, I,
0: I saw
1: that I actually shared it with my family. but I found it the half hour before the show. It's like, oh, this is uh, John, the guy we're talking with today. And it's a really amazing video. Oh, it's fun. Yeah. yeah. In fact, yeah. let me see if I can find it really quickly and put it up on there before we close the stream. Oh, yeah. Let's put the link up to it. Let's see. Boom. Add banner. That work. Show. I think that's... Is this it? There's no, a-
2: that's part of it. But here, let me just... I think the video uh, is in that page. Oh, but, it might be. Yeah. I was told that it had a little bit too much fire for work. And that's a work. <laughs> here. Can I... Is Is there a... Oh, here's a, it, there's, there's a, a weird, there's a YouTube copy of it, low res YouTube copy out there called, if you look up innovation through play YouTube. Okay. We'll do that. But that's not the, there's a, a better Vimeo one. It was done by Sam Mazur, uh, who was at Ogilvy at the time. Cool.
0: Um, and I'll put it in the show note. I'll add it to the Okay, sure. The note on YouTube. And when we, we're going to cross publish this as a podcast, I'll put it in the, the podcast <laughs> notes.
1: Yeah, I'll all look at right. you and, and tweet it out, the thread of, of the show today, so we'll share great. it. Great. Super yeah. fun talking
2: to you both. Really great. And Same I'm here. really looking forward. I'll, I'll be listening going forward, so thank you very much for having
1: me. Yeah, thank you, John. I'd love to talk to you more, too, about, We're I don't know if this was pre-show, but the Node space and Node Red and
2: you know, all that oh, stuff. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, Nick O'Leary of Node Red, is yeah. uh, now he's actually going to go in and be the CTO of a nonprofit that's Pushing. That was yeah. done, by the way. As a, a, a Node Red was started as a hackathon project.
1: Yeah, yeah. Nick's a good friend of mine. We chat regularly. So uh, yeah. tell
2: that's, him uh, close the loop. Tell him hi. I just talked to him actually. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So yeah. much fun. I really appreciate you. Uh, Likewise, talking. it's yeah. so great, and it's this is what it's about yep. building the web here. All yeah. right, everybody. Thank you so much. This was such a great way to end a week. It really was. So, yeah. Go out there. Go make something beautiful.
0: Thank you. Been a been a pleasure Bye. John. Thank you.
2: Yeah, likewise. Bye-bye. Yeah. Cheers.